Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are broadcasting today via remote access, so that in light of the COVID-19 health emergency, we can maintain our social distancing and still bring you today's show. Please be patient as we experience any technical glitches. We hope that everyone listening is safe and healthy and doing what they can to protect themselves and our communities during this health crisis. Wealth Matters is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at a state dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Robert Port, and we're talking about philanthropy in 2020 and beyond. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today, Christy Eckhoff, Chief Foundation Officer and Managing Director, Atlanta Jewish Foundation, and Randy Gorod, Founder, Pisga Consulting. So Christy and uh, Randy, let's start off by uh, getting from each of you briefly a little bit about your background and, and exactly what your practice areas are. Uh, Christy, let's start with you. Sure. So I'm a retired tax attorney who moved to the philanthropic area about 15 years ago. I'm Chief Foundation Officer of the Atlanta Jewish Foundation, and I specialize in charitable tax planning and planning for different gift arrangements and vehicles. And Randy, a little bit about uh, yourself, your background, and your firm. Sure. I'm President and CEO of Pisca Consulting. I've been in the development world for more than 25 years, having served working at the Jewish Federation of Greater Atlanta, Emory University, global nonprofits, and small nonprofits. Our firm primarily works with small organizations so that they have the opportunity to have a wealth of experience and knowledge in their development operations. So let, let's start off. This is kind of fun. So Christy, we had the opportunity and, and treat of having on our show almost two years to the day. And we asked her in 2018, right after the tax act had been passed, what do you think is going to happen in charitable giving? So we're two years out. We've got a lot of things that have happened. We have a new president coming in. We've had a health emergency for a year. Were your predictions right? So they weren't. So we all thought that there was going to be a $20 billion reduction in charitable giving after the tax act. That actually didn't happen. Charitable giving actually increased by about 2.4% in 2019. So, you know, we were all wrong. People are going to be charitable no matter what, because they care. They care about the organizations that they're really passionate about, and they're going to continue to support those organizations as they go forward. But what we have seen is that a lot of the charitable giving has moved to the people who have higher income and higher wealth, um, just because it's a little bit more tax advantage to them. And we've seen some drop off at the lower end of donations and charitable giving. Randy, so when you're talking to your uh, smaller nonprofits, are they seeing kind of the same thing that Christy talks about where you go more higher end? And I say that because my guess is that with some smaller nonprofits, there are fewer large givers. Absolutely. And I think there's there's a, a push to try to find those potential higher donors, engage them really well, and keep them for longer periods, also for the, on the foundation side. And I think that's, I think everyone's trying to figure out how can you build that pipeline of potential donors. I saw this interesting statistic yet the other day, 80% of gifts are under under $100, which now make up only 6% of total giving. 
So that 80-20 rule has gone way a long time ago. We, we knew this. We thought it was 90-10, and now it's really 94-6 or something like that. Like, seriously, we are we, it, there's more separation in the sector and trying to engage people and get them to give and really feel connected to those three to four to five really key organizations that they have a passion for. So, Christy, I was surprised to hear that uh, the predictions were not as expected. So when, when you look back and, if you will, not, not necessarily a postmortem, but try and reflect on how that happened, you, you touched on it, which is, you know, it, it's the desire to give as opposed to perhaps the primary driver being the tax consequences. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit more and how you uh, now incorporate that in, in what you do? Sure. So what I deal a lot with is um, donor advised funds and philanthropic vehicles. So what we really try to tell donors and their advisors is that they can use vehicles like a donor advised fund to, you know, really gather together all the charitable deductions in one year that somebody may be able to take on their taxes, maybe not give, um, you know, outright charitable gifts to organizations in subsequent years, not necessarily take that tax deduction, take the standard deduction, which has increased dramatically for most I think people, you called that before bundling. We call it bundling or bunching. So you bunch those charitable donations in one year through a donor advised fund, and then you're able to continue giving at the rate that you were giving before through that donor advised fund and not have to worry about tax consequences. And is this going to be deductible for me? And I think right now people are just starting to figure that out. You know, we've had two tax returns now that people have done that have dealt with these consequences. And I think right now that's just now trickling down into reality for a lot of people. And they're like, wait a minute, this is the second year that I haven't been able to deduct any of my charitable contributions. What's going on? How do I, how do I fix this? And I think a lot of advisors are hearing that question now. Randy, are you seeing uh, the givers to your smaller nonprofits? Are you seeing them using donor advised funds, or is it not? Is that not something that smaller nonprofits are seeing? I I think everyone's using donor advised funds. The, the biggest transfer in philanthropy has been from individuals to their donor advised funds and their small foundations, and getting comfortable in that conversation with people is really the key for development side. Like just knowing how to ensure that you're thinking about all the opportunities that a donor has to support you, not just their typical, their regular, their regular checkbook, but now they have this philanthropic checkbook or other, other possibility to, for support. So I think the organizations who are, are getting more comfortable having those conversations with donors and prospective donors are doing much, much better. The ones who don't even, can't even articulate how you phrase that they're, they're, the pool is much smaller because we just we're seeing the money move from individuals into their donor advice. And it makes perfect sense. Like, why would you not be doing that? And you, those are also the people who want to be philanthropic. Who I mean, they're, they're putting it there in order for them to support other organizations, not for them to make, it's not like their financial investment for their personal portfolio. It's really for them to do well. And okay, good. so Christy, here's your chance. You give this, this spiel all the time. Tell our listeners not only what is a donor advised fund, but how easy it is to set it up and use it. <laughs> sure. So a donor advised fund is where you put your charitable contribution 
into a specified fund at what we call a sponsoring organization. You take an immediate tax deduction for that. And let's do the pitch. That's what the Atlanta Jewish Foundation is. Yes, we do, we do this all, all the time. And the vast majority of the assets that we manage are in donor advised funds for people. So you take that immediate tax deduction. That money is then invested. And you can choose and recommend to the sponsoring organization how that money is invested. Do you want to be more aggressive? Do you want to be more conservative? And that really depends on what your plan is for spending that money out. And then all you need to do is go on to an online portal anytime you want to make a donation, click on the charity that you want to give to, determine the amount, press a button, and we send the check to the charity and you decide how you want to be acknowledged. You can be anonymous. You can say, please acknowledge me in lights and bright you know, balloons and everything like that and send them to me at this address. So it's very customizable. You know, we work with people all the time, especially around assets. I think the big thing for nonprofits now is they need to talk to people about giving of assets and not of income. Um, you know, when you look at a person's wealth, 80% of their wealth is in assets and not income. And by assets, you mean primarily stocks and bonds? Primarily stocks or bonds, or if you're the owner of a small company, that company. Um, if you're a CEO, then stock options. All of those, any, any kind of asset you can really use for philanthropic means. But when charities talk to people, they're going after that income. And so, you know, when you look at charitable gifts to nonprofits, 80% of those gifts come from people's income. And so nonprofits are missing out on that whole margin of, you know, asset-based giving that can happen. And that's what organizations like, you know, mine specialize in. Can you explain to our, our listeners what the benefits are of contributing assets, particularly appreciated uh, securities? Absolutely. So say you have um, Coke stock and you bought it 20 years ago and you bought it when it was $100 a share. It is now worth ten thousand dollars. If you Good were to go, you. right? We all wish we had done that. Um, you know, if, if you go and sell that stock and then contribute the proceeds to a nonprofit, you have to pay capital gains tax, net investment income tax on it, and so you're going to lose about thirty to thirty-five percent of the value of that gift just by having to pay tax. If you give that um, stock directly to a charity or to a donor advised fund, you take a charitable deduction for $100,000, which is the fair market value of that stock. And so you're actually giving the charity now $100,000 instead of maybe $70,000 that you would be giving it if you didn't give the stock directly to the nonprofit. And so you get the big deduction. Yep. And you get to get rid of your stock that is appreciated and not pay a tax, which is exactly. fantastic. So that, that's why you're encouraged. But remind our, audi our audience needs to know that, of course, the charity pays no tax. That's well, the big thing. Absolutely. So it's, you know, a dollar for dollar gift to the charity. And so really getting charities to understand that and explain that to their donors is, is so important. And so many charities are just scared of doing it. Um, so... You know, I, I, I preach on this all the time, so. And Randy, are you seeing that? Are you seeing that that smaller charities are getting better at not only soliciting, but being able to handle the acceptance of stock? 
Um, yes and no. Those that are, I mean, those that have staff and committed board members who understand this are absolutely doing it. Unfortunately, there are a lot of organizations out there where they don't have staff or board members who understand it. And they're the, just like in giving, the, the, the separation is growing bigger and bigger, larger. And I think that it will continue. I'm not saying, suggesting it's even a bad thing. I mean, in Georgia, it's very easy to start a nonprofit. And there are lots of nonprofits who are really just redundant programs for other larger nonprofits. So, but I just think that that we've done even as much education as we, as we continue to try to do, there are lots of organizations who just are never going to get it because they still think fundraising is about having this big gala and clearly 20, which it wasn't before 2020, but clearly this year showed if you're, if you're relying just on having this big gala and you're going to, which we won't even get into the whole part of it, but that's not doing really good development work and it, meeting people where they are and understanding who they are and understanding what they're, that they want to do and how they connect with your organization. That has been, was the principles of development and clearly is so important to this as we move forward. I mean, that that's the key. I mean, let's look at Mackenzie Scott, like the fabulous, amazing work that she's giving away $42 billion to almost 400 organizations and really small organizations for the most part and really making impact and understanding like how you can make a huge difference by getting involved and in, in sharing that wealth that people have. Some people have ama amazing wealth. I mean, the markets have produced amazing wealth for some people and those people who really are connected, that's the thing, connected and passionate about making a difference. They're the ones who are really, there's, there's amazing stories that we're hearing and not just the big public ones, but also the, the small ones that happen on a, on a local level. I mean, I know this from my organizations, the people who are stepping up and making a difference because they're, they're, they cannot let this organization not, not just fail, but just not make it and thrive and moving forward and helping serve its community. Before we get off the, the donor advised funds, really, really quickly, either of you want to get this, you, you've talked about do donating, uh, securities, particularly appreciated securities, are donor advised funds capable of accepting other assets, real property, interests in private, uh, non-public entities, um, personal property, antiques, paintings? So, so yes, um, to a certain extent. So I just did um, a gift of someone's escort shares um, that holds hotels. Um, I'm working right now on a gift of some LLC interest in a um, partnership um, that's going to go into a donor advised fund and those will be liquidated over the next three to five years. Is it necessary when one gives something like that to, to talk to the charity to make sure that they're able to liquidate it or, or, or monetize it within a reasonable time frame? Absolutely. And, and most organizations won't take those kinds of gifts just because of the risk. But donor advised fund sponsors are kind of built for that. Um, we're able to take that risk. We put them in a donor advised fund. So if it turns out that there is no value in that LLC, it doesn't hurt the nonprofit. They haven't booked it. They have, they're not relying on it. And the donor advised fund balance just goes to zero. So, um, so Randy, from your perspective, if somebody had an asset that they really felt had value and they wanted to give it to your charity, but they really, that the charity was not sophisticated or, or big enough to do it. 
is that the type of time, the kind of time where you'd say, well, wait a second, why don't you go to a, a donor advised fund? Let me give you some ideas and maybe we can work it out. Absolutely. And, and it, there, there are also other people that we, that we know of who their business is about taking complicated assets and making them, helping liquidate them in order for a nonprofit. Like they, they get a share, they get a cut of it, but they take that, they do the really hard work because many small, you should not get involved in that space. I mean, it, it, it's complicated. And I know this from when I worked at Emory, there are definitely sometimes underlying factors, which you'll never know until you get really deep into it. And you do not, and, and it could be ends up, it could be very, very costly for the nonprofit to get too far in without the expertise. So yeah, they, there are definitely times that it makes sense to like to ask somebody for that help asking Chris, I mean, Christy and I know this, like asking Christy, like to help figure it out, whether this is even worth what the, the donor thinks it may be because there are, I can answer that question. It's not right. <laughs> typically not. Right. But like, yeah, but small nonprofits, should, like, that's like the thing is they don't have the, the knowledge of bandwidth, the capacity to take this on. They should definitely, they should definitely meet the donor where they are and talk with the donor about making this happen but be very upfront about this is complicated. We're a small nonprofit. We can't necessarily do this, but we do know of places that can help us make this happen for you. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Robert Cork from the fiduciary law firm of Gaslewitz Frankel. Today, we are talking with Christy Eckhoff, Chief Foundation Officer and Managing Director, Atlanta Jewish Foundation, and Randy Gorod, founder, Pisgah Consulting. Our topic today is philanthropy in 2020 and beyond. Okay, I want to switch subjects and ask you something that I didn't tell you about in advance, because that's what I like to do. What is the impact, good or bad, of the GoFundMe account uh, that we see happening a lot? Yeah, I'll, I'll say, you know, just, you know, a, a general giving perspective. I think they're fine, um, especially if you want to give to an individual because you're not going to be able to take a charitable tax deduction for a gift to an individual in any case. So, you know, using those GoFundMe accounts for people who may be sick and, you know, need meal support or transportation support or something along those lines, um, I think is, is a great way to use those um, types of funds. But you just have to realize you're not necessarily being charitable. What about if it were a, a nonprofit? So I, I've been involved in several nonprofits that have an annual budget of less than fifteen or twenty thousand dollars, and I've seen some of the gap, particularly this year, be filled in with GoFundMe types of of, of appeals. Are those donations deductible? Sometimes I, I think it, if you look at in a, a larger scale, it's a good idea because it gets somebody connected to the organization to learn about the organization and be supportive of the organization and then it becomes on the organization's responsibility to engage those people better more deeply build that relationship build that connection in order for them to give directly to the organization and not through a portal like gofundme i mean at least gofundme you get the information there are others I don't know if we can say it, but Facebook, for instance, you don't know you the the money goes to the nonprofit, and the nonprofit doesn't necessarily know who the donations are from, like the actual individual donors. Like, so, so you're saying that that one of the things nonprofits need to do, whatever the vehicle, the most important thing is to capture the contact information. Absolutely, and everything we do, everything we do, getting to know who those people are. 
their name, their phone number, their email, and then going from there deeper and to know about them. That is the essence of starting a conversation. And when you don't get that information because you're using somebody else who captures that information, but they don't share with a nonprofit, it makes it unbelievably complicated for a nonprofit to move forward. And the problem there also is that the donor thinks that they're connected and they think that the donor, that the organization knows about them and you can't thank them well. You can't thank them almost at all sometimes. And you can't thank them well for sure because you don't have that information that you need in order to start the conversation. Or well, my mother did, did teach me that thank you notes are very, very important. Extremely <laughs> important. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's nothing like, all the data continues to show that getting a handwritten thank you note, how Im impactful, or even a phone call. I mean, there's a great study from a number of years ago about that, um, they, that an organization did about seeing about first time donors and they filled out online a form about making this online donation. And they use a real name and address and email and phone number. And of the 50 organizations, everybody got that pro forma automatic email thank you note, not very meaningful, but yes, it serves its purpose. Some of them received a follow-up email or thank you note. None of them, zero received a phone call saying, thank you for your first donation. And if you wanna stand out in this very, very busy time, I mean, never mind the political climate and how many asks that are happening with, politically, especially here in Georgia, they never seem to end. Um, the idea that organizations are asking more often, which is what they should be doing, but just how do you stand out? How do you engage somebody in a better way than just this very flat email ask? So, so Randy, um, just to drill down that a little bit sure. more, you, you, you used a phrase engagement. Um, talk, talk a little bit about the, if you will, the philosophies uh, of how to approach that. You know, we've talked about personalizing things, letting the donor know they're, they're valued, acknowledging them. Uh, talk a little bit more about how nonprofits should approach that to maintain the engagement. I think, uh, thank you for the question, Brett. It's, it's what I do all the time, helping organizations, whether they be the volunteer side of it or the professional side, realize that everybody has a role in, in development. Everybody's part of the development team, whether they realize it or not, or want to. And I also try to make sure that they're not thinking that development or fundraising is only about asking for support, only about asking for those gifts. I think that that's like a, a terrible thing that happens in our profession. Everybody thinks that it's all about asking. And I don't want to ask anybody for a gift. The idea I, is I'm, I'm very much the same way. I, I've often joked I would I would rather, you know, do some physical labor than than dial for dollars. It's just right. agreed, but like but the idea of talking with somebody and thanking them for their their initial gift and their support and getting to know them better, whether you have coffee with them, you just talk with them, you pick up the phone, you you find out what their interests are, who they are, what like what why they why for first time donors, I always love to ask. Why? Like, wh how come you, like, where, where did this come from? Is there a story that we should know about? Is there a long connection that we are, we're just not aware about? Um, so I want to emphasize the word you just used, connection, because you've now used that word I've counted about six times. So one way of the thank you note, in addition to being appropriate, like my mom says, is that you're helping create the connection. Right. Because that, 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 that built it stronger. The relationship, the, we, we want Give, the best part of giving is when it's not transactional, but it's relationship built. And that's much more solid. We want people, 
in good times and bad times, and this is clearly the, the case right now, in, bad, in terrible times, we want people to feel that they are part and responsible for this organization, and they have to do almost everything they can do in order to help make sure that that organization still exists in good times and help them. And, and so that means their own support, but that also means bringing people who are like-minded together and introducing them to the organization that they can be part of it and, and feel good about that part. I mean, we all know this, we know this better than that. When you give, you feel so good about supporting that organization. You feel part of it. You feel like you cheer for them. When you read about them or you hear about them, you cheer, just like your alma mater. I mean, that's why one of the reasons why universities do so well, You they make you feel really good about being connected. I thought it was because alma mater played such good basketball. Yeah. <laughs> Not not so much this year, but it's okay. <laughs> so let's segue, because you said something that's important. You said, given current times, COVID-19 has been an, uh, just a, a, such an impactful thing that happened this year. It's, it's, it's affecting our health. We're seeing more than 3,000 people die a day now. And nonprofits, appear, particularly those that, that can't do anything, the arts or others, are really struggling. So uh, is it affecting... Uh, let's talk a little bit about the impact on, on, on giving of, of COVID-19. What's happened? I'll start here, Chris. Yeah, go ahead and start and I'll, I'll wrap it up. <laughs> um, it, it's huge. I mean, for lots of organizations that had relied on ticket sales or event rentals or, you know, things like that, philanthropy has had to make up some of that gap. It hasn't made up all of it. It also shows that organizations need to be prepared for bad things happening because they do happen regularly, not necessarily COVID bad, but they're definitely, we, we have ups and downs. See, the economy goes up, up and down. And organizations who are not prepared for changes in their financial structure are really, really, they, some of them will not make it through this year. I mean, that's just the reality. I feel bad. There's definitely gonna be some more mergers, which is also probably good in some ways, like I said earlier. But I think that um, having committed leadership, volunteer leadership, and professional leadership who understand, have these very real hard conversations and understand that we have to do some, you know, we have to probably do a little pruning here and there and do some evaluation of where we're going and what, what our core competencies are and how do we do what we do well and not do the things that we're not necessarily great at. And like, what this is not the time to be adding on new program ideas or, um, you know, I, I feel bad for organizations who are who are just have had just launched capital campaigns and they have a real need for a new capital space. It's very complicated. I mean, thankfully we're getting toward the, we, there is an end in sight, thankfully, I think, but it's, you have to be, you have to have those conversations and organizations who are not prepared for them, they, I don't know how they exist. They're going to make it through it. Are angel donors where, where some organizations are seeing kind of really committed members, are we seeing some of those people able to step up or is, is it just so difficult they're not able to? No, they're, they're stepping up in a big way, huge way, like ways that we never thought they would step up. I mean, it, that just shows like there's immense wealth that people have. And they realize that if it's the, between this organization closing or staying or making it through, they're going to they're doing amazing, amazing things. So one of, one of the issues I've seen in some of the nonprofits I've been involved in is sort of the tension between the, if, if you will, the social worker side of the organization versus the business side of the organization and that that tension 
uh, is always, I don't know, always there, but it seems to me finding that right mix for a, a nonprofit is, is what can be very, very difficult. Chris, do you have any thoughts mm-hmm. about that? Am I, am I correct in, in that assessment? Yeah, and, and we see this all the time. You know, what's the tension between running a really well-organized and functional um, nonprofit and how you deliver services? and where you deliver services to and the need for those services. Um, you know, in, in COVID, it's, it's been a really strange time. Um, we've seen you know, some nonprofits, um, you know, their services have gone to zero, such as the arts or you know, the symphony or something along those lines. We've seen other organizations, especially the human services organizations like the Jewish Family and Career Services in the Jewish community here, um, their service requests have tripled or quadrupled over over COVID. You know, they're still working on the same donor base. And so, you know, they really need that huge influx of money to service the people that they actually need to to service. And so it's been a strange dichotomy through, you know, the nonprofit world around that. I will say one thing that we found, um, we did an emergency COVID fund. And so, you know, no, immediate needs were easy to find, you know, giving PPE to the, the Jewish home, you know, ensuring that, you know, you know, we stopped the food pantries and, and things like that. But after that, it was really, really hard to assess the needs of organizations, both because one, a lot of them took advantage of the PPP loans. So when you went to them and said, what do you need to stay open this month? They were kind of like, well, we've got this PPP loan. So we're okay for, for six, to, six to eight months. And you're like, no, that's not the right answer. Um, <laughs> but, but great. Um, you know, you're stabilized for, for the short term, which is what it was for. Um, so that's, you know, that's great. And really getting nonprofits to articulate their need has been, you know, not necessarily an issue, but it's been hard during this this time and for nonprofits to really say this is what we need to survive and this is you know what we need to in order to provide services um, for our constituents and you know our our area and you know people have to make the case differently right now there's all sorts of competing interests and competing nonprofits um, right now and donors are very confused as to where to put their money. I just worked with somebody who has multi-million dollar donor advised fund. And she was like, these nonprofits that I support aren't coming to me with anything. And I feel like I need to do more. Give me a list of 15 nonprofits that have needs right now. So so she was being proactive? She was being proactive. She wanted to do more. She felt like she could do more. She has all this money in a donor advised fund. That's what money in donor advised funds is meant to do. You deploy it, you know, during during bad times. You have have this fund of philanthropic assets right there. But those organizations that she supported for 20 to 30 years couldn't articulate to her what their needs were. So, Christy, I'll be giving you a call after the show to tell you the organizations that I'm active in <laughs> that have your donor advised funds. But so let me, exactly. let me tell our listeners that you're listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Robert Port from the fiduciary law firm of Gasowitz Frankel. We're talking today with Christy Eckhoff, the chief foundation officer of the Atlanta Jewish Foundation, and Randy Gorod, the president of Pisco Consulting. 
let, let's make a shift in kind of the last section of our show. We, we have a, a presidential election and we could probably all tell stories about the last month in Georgia, but let's not talk about that. How do you think the country is going to be, uh, potential donors are looking at what's gonna change politically, what's gonna change in the tax laws that may have an impact, good or bad, um, on, on giving. So, so what's your predictions or issues that you think donors are looking at given that we have a new administration coming in? Let's start with Christy because uh, you're shaking your head. Yeah, so, so my prediction will be wrong like it was last time, um, but here goes. I, so I think we all think that the tax structure is going to change and tax law is going to change both on the income tax side and the estate tax side. And I think the changes are going to be much more beneficial to charities than they are to high net worth people. So I think there's going to be much more incentive for people to do charitable estate tax planning if the estate tax exemption goes down. Um, when the estate tax exemption went up to 22 million for a couple, we saw a drastic decline in charitable estate planning just because because of that. They didn't need to, to avoid taxes, which is you know an important thing when you're when you're doing those charitable plans. Um, and also on the income tax side, when taxes went down, there was a little less incentive for people to really maximize that giving. But I think if capital gains taxes go up, that's going to be huge for asset giving to charities because it's going to be much more tax advantage than it is now. And I think if income tax rates go up, I think the same is, is going to happen, especially on the high end of things. And all I would add, I mean, I, I agree with most of the Chris, you said, my only concern is that the unknown is a bad thing in the world of development. And I think that we're going to willing to be, regardless of the outcome in Georgia, we're going to be in a place of unknown for a, a number of months. And my, my concern is that people are going to hold back and wait to see where things play that, how they play out in order for them like to make that. But I think this is like the opportunity, like why we have to have the conversations and going back to the earlier conversation, asking doesn't stop, engaging doesn't stop. And the, even though it's the January is in two, less than two weeks, the idea of talking with donors does not stop and making sure that we're talking with them and understanding where they are and, and, and their interests and their de desires um, so that we also can plan accordingly and, and on the nonprofit side, it doesn't mean that they're not gonna support us, but they may, they, they may be wanting to wait to see how things play themselves out. And I think, having those conversations and knowing where they are helps everybody feel better about where things are going, that it's not this sense of panic because it's unknown. Cause there is a, I mean, we've already gone through amazing unknown this year and clearly like the, a new administration is gonna bring a different perspective. And, and that just, mean, that just means there's unknown and uncertainty. And I think there are definitely donors who are, who wanna be supportive, who will be supportive, but they just need to see how it plays itself out. Yeah, and I'm seeing that uncertainty every day. Um, people who I've talked to for the past year about setting up donor advised funds or giving a piece of their business um, through a, a sale or something along those lines, um, they're hesitant to actually make the commitment to do that right now. I mean, people should be set, if high net worth people should should be you know setting up charitable lead trusts left and right, but they're but you know people are talking about it, but they're not actually acting on it because of exactly what Randy was talking about. So, so part of your goal for both of you is to get folks not to sort of be like uh, deer stuck in the headlights because they're concerned about change, which uh, 
I guess it's something theoretically you face uh, certainly every four years, uh, but but when an administration changes. I think if it, we face it all the time, Robert. I think the idea that if we allow people to to to, to step back into work and not talk with them regularly, I mean, we know this also that if we're not engaging and talking with them, somebody else is. And you, the idea, I mean, there's a huge transfer of donors from one organization to another. We have not done it as a sector, we have not done well at all about retaining donors over the, over long periods of time. Basically, we, we've allowed them to like slip slip out of our hands because we haven't talked to, to them well, we haven't thought, we haven't met them where they are and helped them figure out how they can best support us. And, and that happens all the time. I mean, the change of administration is just one more layer to that conversation that we, and, you know, one that, more rationale. Yeah, that, that touches upon an area that's of interest to me, which is something called behavioral finance. And, and I, I think one of the precepts there is that, um, you know, you can do all your planning and create wealth, but, but the, cert, the, the joy and, and intrinsic value folks get from from doing things with their money, seeing what what their assets can do for an organization or for individuals. And and it seems to me I'm I'm sort of fascinated. I'm not very good at it, but I'm fascinated by the fact that both of you are in fields where you have to keep that top of mind uh, pretty much at all times and, and know how to how to make that happen, get the engagement as you've talked about before. So we're, we're nearing the end of our show. So, so Randy, I have a question for you and, and Christy, a question for you. Randy, the question for you is, what do you advise, what is your recommendation for nonprofits to do right now? You know, in the next two or three months while, while we're, we're gauging what happens. My two question three for you, Christy, is what are you recommending to individuals that they do in the next two to three months while we see what happens with the new administration? Also in the next 11 12 days, they should be asking. They should be, they, they need to ask again for those people who can support them to help support them. So in order for 2021 to start off as, as strong as possible. And then I think they need to be, and I also think they need to thank them really, really well. And I think that they need to have, try to slow it down. And in this world, we're always speeding things up. I saw this article in the Chronicle of Philanthropy yesterday about automation and artificial intelligence helping in development. I think we have to make it more personal, more one-on-one. I think organizations get, need to go out and really get to know who their top 10%, 20% of their donors are. I used to say numbers, but it's, it depends on the organizational side. Do you really know these people? Are you really are they comfortable with knowing you and who, who they are? And, and spend that time building those stronger, much stronger, much firmer relationships between the organization and their donor base. So let me summarize for you. Write your thank you notes on January 2nd in your own handwriting and call your key donors and just say hello. Yeah. And get, I mean, Zoom has been a great place. Like we can engage people in a comfortable way and they don't have to feel uncomfortable about talking with us. And we don't, and as long as we're not talking about asking, just checking in with them, making sure that they're okay as well. That's a great idea. Christy, you get to go now. So what I would say in the next 12 days, if your advisor is telling you to um, establish a donor advised fund, give some stock to your donor advised fund, set up the charitable lead trust, do some of those things, go ahead and do it. Market's sky high. It's not going to last like that forever. Um, now it's a time to maximize that philanthropic pot of money that you're going to be able to use. 
And what I tell fund holders all the time, and I'm especially telling them in COVID, is don't sit on the sidelines. Give, you know, we've seen an increase of about 35% um, of, you know, increased grants going out um, to the community because of COVID. And that's what we want to see. We want to see this money moving. We want to see this money being put into action. And we want to see this money being used by nonprofits in a really efficient and impactful way. Thank you. Before we conclude, um, we'd like to ask each of you to uh, let our audience know what your contact information is, perhaps a website, uh, email address, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, whatever suits you. So, uh, Christy, how about you go first with that? Sure. So you can reach me at the Atlanta Jewish Foundation. We are atlantajewishfoundation.org. My email is cekoff at jewishatlanta.org. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can always reach out to me um, there as well. And also my phone number is on the website. Thank you. Randy? I can be reached in many ways as well, also through social media for sure. My website is piscaconsulting.com, P-I-S-G-A-H, Mount Pisca, Western North Carolina, right there. Um, my, my email is randy at piscaconsulting.com. My phone number, I mean, you can call me, you can actually on my website, you can book a time through Calendly to, to have a conversation with me. Um, love having conversations and even just helping organizations figure out what path they need to get, like get started on. Let's stop sitting around. Let's engage people better. Let's ask better. Let's do better for everybody. So as we end our show, I want to thank everybody for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. And I want to wish everybody a healthy and safe new year. For more information about Gastelwitz Frankel, please go to our website at gastelwitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag, Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Christy Eckhoff, Chief Foundation Officer of the Atlanta Jewish Foundation, and Randy Gorod, President of Pisca Consulting. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.